Now, for some of you that haven't been here for a while, you're going like, what's happened to Pastor Ken? I got only one word for that. Jesus. We are now in our second week on our series on holiness and righteousness. And what we discovered last week is that our God is a holy God, which means that he is unlike any other. There is no one like him. No one can fathom him. No one can really understand him or, de- or plumb the depths of his being. He's just, you can't compare anything to him. And because he is holy, because he is righteousness, here's what he says to us. He says, be holy as I am holy. So he's calling us to be holy, to step into holiness. And and that can be a little bit scary at times. That can be a little bit frightening to step into the holiness of God because when the angels in heaven, as has been recorded in the Bible, what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty. And then they repeat it. And they repeat it. And they repeat it. When John, the gospel writer, was also wrote Revelations, when he was on the island of Patmos, and he heard the trumpet blast before him, and he turned around, and he saw the glorified King of glory, Jesus, he fell on the ground and said, I am like a dead man. That's what the holiness of God does. But Jesus took him by the hand, picked him up, and revealed, that's why it's called Revelations, revealed all the wonders and uh, glory of who he was. And so we're into that now. And so we're, we're going to step into seeking God on how we can live in the holiness of his son. That's what we're called to do. So hang on, and we'll get going together here, okay? So, but in... In um, the 19th chapter of Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is teaching and preaching and healing and doing all kinds of things around the area, this the Bible tells us that there's this rich young guy who comes to Jesus with a burning question on his heart. This young guy is a guy that could have possibly started a new business where he had been making a lot of money. He has a lot of wealth, and he's got everything going on for him. And he's coming to Jesus with this question on his heart regarding eternal life. Or let me put it to you this way. About living a holy life here so that he can have eternity with God up there. He wants to know what it looks like to live right now in the holiness of life so that he can spend eternity with God. So that's the question he poses to Jesus. What do I have to do to get eternal life? And so what Jesus says to him is, you have to obey your parents. You have to not steal. You don't murder. And Jesus basically walks him through what it looks like to to live a holy life here on earth by obeying the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting how the young man responds. Because the young man says, all of these I have kept. I, I, I like his response because he's, I think he's really being honest with Jesus. He's saying like, I've done all that. I have done all of that. And the, and the interesting thing to me about that little um, conversation Jesus is having with this young guy is that Jesus doesn't challenge him on whether he has or has not kept the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes like, what? No, you didn't. Jesus didn't call him out on it. But what the young man says next is really interesting. He says, what do I still lack? In other words, all of his righteous deeds, all the things that he's done to obey the law has left him with an emptiness in his heart. He's going like, man, there's something else that I'm missing. There's something that I don't have. He goes, I want to know what it is. I've done all that's required, and yet there's this emptiness in my soul. How can that emptiness be filled? What's going to fill that emptiness? This is where Jesus is so masterful at conversation because he takes that conversation now, and he brings it to the heart issue. It's a heart issue. He says to the young man, he says, I want you to take 
everything that you've got. Go and sell everything. Give the proceeds to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me and you will be perfect. And it's interesting what the response of the young man tells us. Because it says, when the young man had heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and he couldn't bear to let go. Now, I'm not sure that we would have been any different if we were in the same position as that young man. I think we probably would have acted the same way. We wouldn't have done anything any different. Now, I I know what we want to say is go like, no, you know what? I think I would have done that. I I want to be different. I I want to do the things that are going to please God. And I'm not too sure, though, that we would have gone out. We would have put a for sale sign on our yard and sold our home. And then we would have taken the cars down to the post office and put for sale signs in them and sold them. And put all of our big big boy toys on trailers and put for sale on them. And then had a... Uh, auction at our house to sale, sell all of the possessions, all the guns, all the stuff that we have, just sell it lock, stock, and barrel. And then we take that load of cash and we walk down here and you give it to the church. You come in with just this enormous amount of cash and you, you plunk it down right here on this table and you say to Pastor John and to Janine, you don't trust me with the cash. <laughs> Here's all the money from everything that I've ever owned. What I'd like you to do with this money now is I'd like you to make sure that all the poor people in this church are taken care of. If the word got out, we'd have a lot more poor people in the church. And then whatever's left over, give it to the food bank or some other organization that takes care of poor people. And then you say, I'm off to go and walk with Jesus. That sounds really great, but it would not be that easy to do. It would be a different, different thing. It would be a hard issue. The heart issue for this young man, and maybe even for us, is that it's not he couldn't give his stuff away. Because what do we do? We always give our stuff away. We just get new stuff. The issue was his ability to absolutely love and worship God. And making himself set apart for God. Being set apart for God. The things that were tripping him up from being set apart for living a holy life and following Jesus were all of his wealth and earthly possessions. Because he had a lot of stuff. Now, this is the issue that we've had with humankind right from the beginning. When Adam and Eve were created and brought to this earth, God gave them two things to do. He says exercise dominion over creation. And the second thing is that when they do it, they do it in total dependence upon God. Have dominion over the world, but depend on me for everything. Those are the two things that God told them to do. Well, they did it. They did it for a while. We don't know how long they did it for, but they did do it for a while. And all of a sudden entered into the picture the serpent, a.k.a. the devil, Satan, Lucifer, same guy. What he did is he twisted what God had created and he defiled it. Sin came into the world and it changed everything. Sin changed dominion over creation to the domination of of creation, including domination of one another. It turned dependence on God into independence of God and dependence instead upon creation for meaning. So what God told us to rule over and to to cultivate and do all this great stuff and trust Him to do it, now we're trying to rule it and others and we're saying to God, thanks, but no thanks, I can do it myself. I don't need your help. We've all heard those words before. I mean, if you don't think that's true, just think back to your two-year-old. I do it myself. 
for you on sitting back there, those wee ones. Just wait, it's coming. I can do it myself, Daddy. And that's what we're yelling at God. We're telling God, I don't need your help. I can do it myself. And God's going like, well, you know what? I've been watching this ever since I've created Adam and Eve. And here's, here's the newsflash. No, you can't. And where there was once a clear expression of divine image, dominion, and dependence, which were in harmony with each other, now there's tension. Sin created tension between God's design of being dependent and, and taking dominion over creation. Sin twisted that expression of God's image. What was designed out of God's holiness has now been corrupted by sin. And what sin did was to take what was pure and noble and righteous and holy and defiled it. Ever since sin came into the world, everything that God created has been defiled by it. Do you know what that means? Have you ever had a defiled shoe? <laughs> you all know what I'm talking about, don't you? You go to the park, you go to somebody's house or something, and all of a sudden there's this stench that you cannot get away from. <laughs> and, and, it, and pretty soon you're going... <sighs> and then you go like this. <sighs> it's dog poo. And it's stuck on your shoe. And the only thing you can do to get that off is to take it over to the car wash or the power washer and wash it. Because it sticks on everything. It defiles everything. And that's exactly what sin is in this world. It's, it has a stench to it that has defiled everything good and holy and righteous and pure that God has ever made. And that started with us and with our hearts. So... Here's the, the craziest pl- thing is that the place that tension exists is in our hearts. The Bible describes our hearts as the source of which everything flows. God asked us to love him with the source of our being, our feelings, our willing, our acting. We know this because Jesus answered the, how Jesus answered the question that was posed to him of what was the most important commandment that one should keep. And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You want to boil down the the entire Bible into two things? You just got it. Love God and love your neighbor. Now, that doesn't mean I just gave you the cliff notes on the Bible and you don't need to read it. There's a, there's a lot to unpack in all of that loving God and loving other things. There, there's more than what you will ever be able to unpack in an entire lifetime. So get busy, get into it, and start reading. If, if you really want to know and worship God in a more intimate way, if you want more of God than what you have had, if you want to have an encounter with the living God, then God is calling you to love him with all of your being. And I want you to notice what, what Jesus said there. There's an order in all of this. And, and when Jesus puts something in a particular order, it's not just kind of willy-nilly. He just kind of thought of it and went like, well, maybe we should do that. Well, here, you know, let me just give it to you no, in no particular order. That's the way I say it. When Jesus says it, it has a particular order. And the first thing that he says is that we are to love God with all of our heart. Now, why the heart? Why not our mind or our soul? Because the mind is the place of reason and the soul is the place of receiving stuff spiritually. So why the heart? Why not those other two places? It would make more sense for us to start with the mind and then move to the soul and then to the heart and then to the body. But Jesus knows something about us that we either don't know or if we do know it, we're choosing to, if we do know it, we're choosing to ignore it completely. And we find what Jesus is talking about in Proverbs chapter 4. It says, Guard your heart above all else, 
for it determines the course of your life. It's the power source of your life. And, and God's saying, you need to put a guard on that thing. You need to protect your heart. Because your heart will lead you astray. By the way, you've heard this before. The heart wants what it wants. And so I've fallen in love with this person. And I've fallen out of love with that person. I, I, let me just bust a myth here. And this is for free. It's not even in my notes. This is for free. Okay, if you fell into love, that's like falling into a ditch. It takes no effort. All you have to do is stumble and fall and you roll in the ditch and you walk around in the ditch for a little while and you go like, this is stupid, I'm in the ditch. And so you walk out of the ditch. That's what it's like falling in and out of love. It's just like falling into a ditch. A cow falls into the ditch for Pete's sakes. And it doesn't get up and go like, I must be in love. When we love someone, it's a choice we make. And that's what God's saying right here. Choose to love me, first of all, with your heart. And that's where we're going to kind of camp out today, is right on this heart issue, because it's such a big deal. And yet we skip right over it and don't make a big deal of it. Yet God makes a huge deal of it. And so in order for us to be holy as God's calling us to be holy, we have to guard our hearts. We have to keep a sharp eye on our heart because if we don't, it will become the ultimate idol factory. Now, a lot of what I'm going to tell you from this point forward, I've taken from a pastor that I know in Canada. His name is Sundar Krishna. And he has a brilliant mind when it comes to the things of the heart with God and what keeps us from really stepping into it. So I've, I've, I stole it. I didn't even borrow it. I just plainly stole it. So he put it in a book. That meant I could use it. So here's where we need to go because what God has done as we talked about Adam and Eve back at the beginning, God created man. He brought them to a place where he instilled into their gene. Now, you're not going to find this by the scientists, but I believe it's instilled into every living person that walks on the planet. The gene is a worship gene. We're created to worship. And, and what happens is, is that in the beginning, in the original design, that worship desire was, was given to the Creator. Adam and Eve absolutely worshipped God before sin entered into the world. But then when sin came into the world, it gave this propensity towards independence of God. And now we seek, we still have this desire to worship but the problem is we're either worshiping something or someone. Because if we're not worshiping God and focusing our worship on God, then we will create or fashion our own God or idol that we will manufacture out of our heart. And the perplexing thing about how the heart creates an idol is that it creates an idol in pairs. It's not just one. You don't just get one. It's kind of a, a dueling pair of idols that we create in our hearts. So let me explain that to you. When we create an idol, we create, first of all, a nearby idol who is small enough so that we can remain in control. That's called domination. And then we create a faraway idol who is big enough to give meaning, and that's called dependence, but never close enough to threaten our control. So we, we have these two idol things going on out of the factory of our heart. We create this nearby idol that we can absolutely have control over. And then we create this fictitious thing out there in the distance that kind of gives us meaning and significance for life. That's what happens when we don't worship God. That's what happens when we don't put our full devoted attention and our love towards God. We create something out of our own heart. And let me say this. A lot of times... 
what, it, what we make into an idol is something that God gave to us to begin with. And he said it was good, but we took it from being good to making it God. And in that very moment, we took what God meant to be good and we made it bad. So, how does this whole thing apply to our lives? Well, there's one thing for sure. We are absolutely in this room. Uh, uh, listen, you guys are very sophisticated people. You're well-educated people. You've been illuminated to the realities of life. Therefore, I don't think anybody in here has ever gone and created an idol out of gold, silver, or stone. We're too smart for that. We're just not going to do that. That would look really stupid. I have a couple of neighbors that put some of those up in their yards. And I pray that God would bust them. I'm serious, I have. So if a 100-pound hailstone falls somewhere in Lander, you know where it fell. So we're going to start talking about idols this morning. We're going to stop, start with the most common idols. And here's what they are. These are the nearby idols. Power, possession, popularity, and the money that is necessary to buy most of those things. This is a group of nearby idols that confer a lot of control. If we have power, possession, popularity, and a lot of money, we have control over things, circumstances, and people. But that doesn't give meaning by itself. So we have a faraway idol that brings significance to us. It brings meaning to our lives. It's, it's a, a small God that we worship that goes along. We create this thing and it goes along with our thoughts and ideas. We put it in a place to where it actually lines up with what we think is right and what we believe is right. So we create this God out there and it's been around for a long time. It's called philosophy. We have these philosophies, ideas, and what we do is we try and pick and choose different philosophies that, that kind of line up with where we're at, and so it makes it good because they kind of give us a little bit of significance and meaning, and we can sound really smart by talking all kinds of philo- philosophical ideas, and people are like, wow. But all it is is this God that's given us some kind of a false hope and meaning. Now, one of let me just really be specific about that one because... Let me give you an example of it. It is the New Age philosophy. The nearby idol for New Age philosophy, the nearby idol is the power of the human mind. They talk about positive thinking, silver mind control, psycho-cybernetics, all of that stuff. And the goal in every case is power. Power in business, power in personal relationships, power over problems, power over health issues. What they say is just use your mind And think yourself rich. Think yourself to be appealing. Think yourself to be happy. And it will happen if you can just get control over your mind. That's the that's the one that gives us significance. And then the nearby God is the control power thing over our mind. The far God, far away God is pantheism. Now pantheism, pantheism is the belief that God is in everything and God is everything. In other words, if you see a dog running down the street, that dog is God. If you go out and you hug a tree in the woods, you just hug God. If you see the sun come up in the morning, that's God. You see a rainbow, that's God. You see the grass and the lawn, that's God. And what happens is, is that people shamelessly borrow from Eastern mysticism, which says what? I'm God. That's the idol that we get. Because we have this power, prestige, all the money, and then we have to have a far away, so we can control all that, but we have this far away idol in our hearts of pantheism that says, you know what, I'm going to be my own God. And that's what people do. People get caught up in those things. And it, it absolutely twists the reality of who God is and brings people to a place where they can't tell up from down, right from wrong. They don't know left from right. And their lives are a mess. And they keep going back to the false God, to the false well and trying to drink from it. And they end up like the rich young man who came to Jesus with an emptiness in their soul that's never been filled. Let's move along. We're going to hit one that might be You might say I've stepped on your toes with this next title we're going to talk about. 
And if I stepped on your toes, I'm really sorry about that because I was shooting for your shins. <laughs> okay? So we're going to talk about the idol of the body. The nearby idols are diet and fitness. It, this is the thought behind it. If I can be thin enough, shapely enough, strong enough, look attractive enough, I'll be in control of my life and people will admire me or even worship me. Just think about it. All of the models, supermodels, all the people on fitness magazines and all the rest of that stuff, what do they want to be? They want to be a god. They want to be worshipped. They want to have people admiring them. That's what this whole nearby idol diet fitness goes on. Now, don't misunderstand what I said. Don't go home. You know, and think, well, shoot, now I can just sit on the, on the couch and eat donuts and eat chips and, you know, just kind of like waste my life away. I'm not saying that. I am not absolutely 100% saying that because diet and fitness are really important because God gave you this vessel to take care of until the battery runs out. You don't pull the battery out and throw it in the garbage can early. God's the one that determines when the battery's dead, not you. So take care of what God's given to you. Matter of fact, it's such a big idea that Paul even told this to his, his student and friend Timothy. He says, physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. Or I, li- I kind of like it the way the message, the translation of the message says it. It says, stay clear of silly stories that get dressed up as religion. Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gym are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. You can count on this. Take it to heart. Yeah, it's a good idea to get some exercise, to get out there and burn off some of that lunch or dinner or whatever it is, to get out there and have some regular exercise. But if you're doing that and you never spend any time exercising your mind, your heart, your soul, and your spirit, then you are exercising the wrong thing. And exercise could then be a small g God for you, an idol. The nearby God has taken a lot of money out from people and left them disillusioned and disappointed with how things turned out. I mean, you just think about how much money has been spent on diet programs, you know, I mean, there's, you, you can't watch television at night with not, without having three or four of them come on and blast you in the face. And they show all these people that, you know, used to be an elephant and now they're a kangaroo or something. I don't know. They're just, they were, they were large in charge and now they're just skinny mini. And it's just like, you look at it and then you go like this and then you look at them and you go like, dang, I want to look like that. And then you go online and you look it up and you go like, I can't afford to look like that. (laughs) Or all of a sudden they've got all these people that are going like, look, all it takes is 14 minutes a day on this machine and you go from looking like this guy to the guy that's on the beach posing, right? And you're going like, 14 minutes a day, I can do that. But what they don't tell you is that he spends six other hours at the gym down there lifting weights, doing sit-ups, having a personal trainer to get him to look like that. And so it's, it's all, it's, it's this thing about this idol that we have about fitness and all the rest of that. And the far away God, the, the close up God is the diet and the exercise because we can control that. But the fire, far away God is self-esteem. Self-esteem. Now listen, I know that there are a lot of people who have self-esteem issues. And the primary reason for self-esteem issues is because we're trying to find our identity in ourself rather than in Christ. When you're in Jesus, you will never have a self-esteem issue ever again in your life. Because here's the thing that Jesus says. I love you just the way you are. By the way, I created you just the way you are. So do this. I want everybody to do this right now. Just put your arms like this. And give yourself just a big old hug and just say, Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. I love me too. 
we just took care of, listen, whoever's the counselor in town owes me a lot of money. I just dealt with a lot of issues right there. I'm just saying. But here's the thought process behind the faraway idol of self-esteem. It says, if I can get and keep myself in shape, I'm going to feel so good about myself that nobody's going to stop me. I can conquer the world. When I was... It seems like a hundred years ago, when my oldest daughter was a baby, I was a... um, Youth, a volunteer youth worker in the large church we were attending. And we had this kid who was in the youth group and in the 10th grade. He was shy, quiet, bashful. He would never look you in the eyes. He always walked around kind of hunched over with his hands in his pockets like this. And if you talked to him, he'd kind of go like this. And he would look at you. And he was a nice kid, but he... His self-esteem was in the toilet. Over the summer, he was gone for three months with his parents. They went on a long vacation. And in the fall, when he came back, I am not kidding you, he had hair like Fabio down to here. Kind of made me mad. (laughs) And he was swooping his hair around. And he found out that with his long hair, all of a sudden, all the girls were going like, oh, my. His hair gave him his identity, his self-esteem. And all now, all of a sudden, he's standing up straighter. He's looking a little bit more bold, and he's walking with a little bit of a, a pep in his step. And he's looking at the other guys and going like, Absolutely, 100% changed that kid's identity. But you know what the problem is with that? You end up looking like me. Your self-esteem goes down the drain. Every time you take a shower, it's gone. And God is calling us to step away and find our esteem in Jesus, not the idol that we've created called self-esteem. All right, let's move it along. Um, we're not, we can't forget this one. This is a big one. It's a really big one. Religious idols. The nearby idol is legalism. Change life into a bunch of rules and regulations where every question has pat answers, and that gives you a tremendous amount of control over yourself Because you don't have to think. When you don't have to think, nothing ruffles your calmness and your established way of thinking. Not only that, it gives you tremendous control over others. One of the major motivating forces behind legalism is the extent of power that it confers over other people. The faraway idol is the heavily edited version of Jehovah in the Old Testament. God of the Old Testament was about justice, truth, righteousness, mercy, and grace. Matter of fact, we we know that's what he's about because of what he said in Micah chapter 6. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. But what happens is that when we get that, that idol of religious idolatry going on in our lives, we forget about the aspect of God and we've distorted who He is and then we edit God's mission for us and we're no longer about loving and worshiping God. What we're all about now is is doing our own thing. We forget to tell people of His love, His mercy and His grace and forgiveness. And what we try to do is we try to guilt and scare people into believing the rules and, and following the regulations. That's what, that's what the religious idol does. It creates this false sense in our lives. And one of the reasons why legalism is so hard to break is that anything that conveys control and meaning is unbelievably powerful. The nearby idol is small enough that you can retain control. The faraway idol is big enough 
to give you meaning because it's far away and it won't affect the way you live. That's the religious idols. So, you all know we're not religious in here, right? We are not about religion. If somebody says, what religion are you? You just go, I'm not. Where do you go to church, Wind River Community Church? What religion is it? It's not. You want to throw a lot of confusion at people? You just tell them, I'm not religious, but I certainly love Jesus. And they're going to go like, I don't get it. Well, come, come with me to church, but church is a religion, not ours. Come with me to church and find out what it looks like. So the question then is really, what about Christ followers? Well, you're all going to agree with this. I know you are. We believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Apostles' Creed, Holy Communion, Baptism, and all the rest of that stuff. We believe in that. Amen? Amen. All right. So we don't make idols in our hearts, do we? No. Here's what we do, though. What we do is we split God into two parts. We create a nearby version of God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is uh, a heavily modified version of God of the Bible. And we obtain it by rejecting those parts of the Bible that don't fit in with our picture of God. If we don't like what the Bible has to say about confrontation, bitterness, anger, then, then we don't read the part about forgiveness. If we don't like the part that it talks about, if we're not interested in being generous people, then we throw out everything that the Bible says about money. If we're not interested in purity, then we don't give a rat's tail about what the Bible says about sexuality. We make it to fit our thoughts about who God is instead of stepping in and finding out who the God of the Bible is and what He has to say and applying it to our lives. So we split Him into, a set, into different parts. The resulting nearby idol does not challenge the control area of our life. But how about the faraway idol? Well, the faraway idol, it, 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 we would all agree to this. God is called Yahweh, the great I Am. And we accept everything the Bible says about Him. We maintain God's revelation intact. But here's where the idol comes in. We never approach Him fully in worship. We come part way. And we say that's close enough. Because you have to stay far away. That way, when he, we don't approach Him in worship, He stays far away And the nearby God, which we actually believe, never is challenged. Here's what we've done. We've created a nearby idol by miniaturizing God. Our nearby idol miniaturizes God. We make him small enough so that we can control everything we want him to do. And then what we do with God who is the faraway God, we vaporize Him. We miniaturize and we vaporize. So what happens when we vaporize God is that God is out there somewhere. It's kind of like the Milky Way. You can see it at night, but when the sun comes out, it just disappears. It's no longer there. It's vaporized. I still know the Milky Way's there. I still know that the stars are up there. I know that all the planets are right up there in the sky, but they're vaporized by sunlight. That way they don't have an effect on my life. I'm not stargazing all day long. And that's what we do with God is we know He's out there, but we've vaporized Him to where He has no influence, no control, no say, no sovereignty over anything in our life. That's What we do as Christ followers because we don't want to step in and let God take control of us and that's how we commit adultery. But you know in Jeremiah 23 it says this, Am I a God at hand nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? God's asking a very important question to His chosen people back then and right now. The chosen people now are us. He's asking... You think I'm somebody you can modify, put into your pocket and take with you when you need help? I am the same God far away who is nearby, the transcendent, 
unequal, unmatched God who gives you meaning. You can't push me away. I am unchangeable, non-negotiable. I am unrelocatable. Nearby God, let us control our lives. Far Far away gods give us meaning. But our God rules all of it. Now here's something that might be a little bit shocking to some of you. Our God, the God we worship, the true God, doesn't need our worship. Think about that. God does not need our worship. Let me explain that. Our worship doesn't make Him any more glorious. And our rebellion doesn't make Him any less glorious. He is, by His holiness, completely and utterly, eternally glorious with or without us. So God is not dependent upon us for anything. Nothing. He doesn't need our love. He doesn't need our commitment. He doesn't need our communion. He doesn't need our fellowship. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our worship. He is absolutely complete, totally by Himself, and needs nothing from us. And so when God says... Worship me with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. He's calling us to come and be in His presence so that we're the beneficiaries of it, not Him. Os Guinness, an author, he says this. The imagination of our sinful heart has such a reality-creating power that the non-existent is vested with its own dynamic. Thus, regardless of what the mind knows, the imagination of the heart can change the mind. It can turn lies into truth, fictions into reality, non-gods into gods, and the quite incredible into the utter credible. The idol-making propensity of the imaginations of our heart is the continuing and deadly threat of faith. Do you get that? Do you get the very thing that is threatening your relationship with God? It's what you do in your heart. Let me just give you a prime example of that. You think that there is someone who has a problem with you because you said hi to them or you waved at them or you did something and they looked and did not acknowledge you. So then all of a sudden, what do we do? Our imagination in our heart takes over and we create a storyline about why that person didn't respond to us, what they're thinking, What I did wrong to make them think the way that they're thinking, we create this story in our head, and guess what that story is? It's 100% pure fiction. Because we don't know, because we've never asked, because we don't don't go and seek the person out, go like, hey, you okay? Oh, hey, how, how are you doing? And all of a sudden, you don't even have to really ask a lot of questions. You can tell by their body language and the way that they, they express themselves to you and the things that they say that there was nothing. They just didn't see you. They missed, they missed seeing you. They were looking at something else. And so you have created storyline off of a fiction in your own mind that was created from the imagination of your heart. And we do that with God all the time. Shame on us. Here's the problem with idols. First, idols are liars and they deceive us. The nearby idol promises you control. The faraway idol promises you meaning. But the nearby idol ends up controlling you and the faraway idol deserts you in the middle of a, of a crisis of life. It's just not there to help. The second reason for God's warning against idols is the reoccurring principle in the Bible that those who worship idols become like them. We become like what we worship. That's why we are called to worship God. So we become like Him. In Psalms 35, 1 through 15, or 15 through 17, it says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of, hand, of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but they do not see. They have ears but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. See, see that last line, nor is there any breath in their mouths? 
The Bible says that the breath is always a sign of life. One result of idols in our hearts is that we become breathless people, not able to communicate life-giving words to others. We cannot see reality, hear reality, smell reality, taste reality, so we cannot communicate reality to people. We've lost all of our spiritual sensitivity to God, and what we give to people is nothing. So let's go back where we started and look again at what Jesus said. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, the, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. To say that the Lord our God is one is to say that there is no other God besides him. And this is not a conclusion of logical argument or simply an article in a creed. It is an overpowering, brain-hammering, heart-stopping truth that is a command to love the only one worthy of our entire, entire and unswerving allegiance. This unswerving allegiance to God must be a daily, even moment-by-moment decision. Having once turned from idols to the living God, our task of keeping on turning is never done. It continues for a lifetime. I'm telling you right now, I started in on this message. And I think, you know, let me... uh, I didn't walk out here and see God handwriting on the wall. But I really sensed where God was calling me to go and what he was telling me to preach about. About idols in our hearts. Now, it would be shameful for me to stand up here and talk to you about idols in the hearts when I didn't do any heart searching, any heart work. So all week long, I've been saying to God, I haven't said, are there idols in my heart? That's not what I asked God. I'm a little bit smarter than that. I already know. So I kept saying to God, reveal what the idols are of my heart. And I'm going to tell you something. When you ask God to do that, boy, he's quick to the punch on it. I'm telling you, God revealed to me some idols in my heart. And I'm going to tell you something. I am so thankful that he did. Because it gave me a chance to repent and pull those things up before God and say, help me with this. I, I want to be delivered from this idol or these idols in my life. I don't want them. I want you. I want more of you. I want the fullness of you. I don't want an idol to block that. And idols are just like weeds. You don't grab that thing and get the root all the way down to the bottom. You can come back two weeks later and it's right back there. You've got to dig that root out all the way. And you know what happens in a flower bed when you've got one of those big nasty weeds and you start to pull on it you realize, I can't get the whole root so I'm going to have to dig it? What happens to the flower bed? It gets messed up. It doesn't look as pretty. But what you were doing is you're saving your, your other plants from this, this nasty weed. And so you, you pull stuff away and you pull it up and you dig down and you get that entire root. And it's this long and, and the plant on top of it's only this big. It's because for the last 10 years you've been breaking the top off that and that, that root keeps going right down, 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 down. And finally you get in there and you mess it up and you make a mess out of everything so that you can dig that root right out and get rid of it and toss it in the garbage. That's what's required. If you're going to uproot idols out of your life, you're going to have to ask God to get into the middle of your life and make a mess of whatever it is so that he can get the root out of it. And once he gets the root out of it, he will put it not just back into order. He will make it look better than it ever looked before. So what about you? Did God reveal any idols in your hearts today? You alone know how you have fragmented God. You alone know what nearby idols you have manufactured to give you control and how you have pushed away the God of the Bible, editing him into a faraway God who gives meaning but is not close enough to change your life. Only you know that. And God. 
And so it's time to repent of this sin. It's time to bridge this artificial separation. It's time to let the faraway God of the Bible be the nearby God to once again yield control of our lives to Him, to live in dependence on Him, and thus draw our significance from Him by cooperating with Him to, to advance His kingdom and in us and through us. So how do we know what that looks like? Where's the hope in all of this? By the way, Pastor Ken, thanks for all the bad news. You got anything good to say this morning? I do. Actually, God does. God has something magnificent. I want you to hear this. It's out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And it says, And we all, that's all of us, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, get this, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. You see, it's not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon me. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for yourself. It is by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life that He is going to transform you into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You will be like Jesus when you kill the idols in your life. I believe God's calling us to repent. That means to have a complete change of mind, perspective, disposition, orientation and motivation to uproot the idols that have stolen our heart's affection for God and have taken control over us. So during our next song, and the worship team is going to come up here just in a minute, I want you to take time and I want you to talk to God. You can sing and let the Spirit do the work in your life. Or if the Spirit's already been poking you right now, you can make the place where you're sitting, your altar, your place between you and God where you do business and you give up the idols in your life and let God root them out and change you forever. So here's what we're going to do. You can do it right where you're at. You can say, I'm going to make this my place. This is my place between me and God. Or if you, you're going like, I want to make a public declaration that I am going to now stand for God. I am going to kill the idols in my life. I want people to know that I want to be accountable for it. I just ask you to just come right up here. And, and, and you can sit or you can kneel down. You can stand and pray. But make... Make this time a time between you and God where He does work in your life to uproot whatever idol it is that He revealed to you today. So when we start to sing this next song, use the words as your own prayer if you want. Or come and make this a place of prayer. Or the place where you're sitting, a place of prayer. But, but don't talk to your neighbors. Don't, don't be looking around. Just come and worship the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, and strength. And let God have control. Amen? I'm not even going to pray. I'm not going to pray because I want you to pray. I want you to seek God.